You just sang that uh, one verse that mentioned, Jesus, may you receive the honor that you're due. And we're going to talk about that this morning as we continue our series on Jesus' victory. This is week number five. You may want to remember that because that number will come into play this morning. As we look again to the prophet Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 3, we read this text a number of weeks ago, but we didn't read quite as much as we'll read today. So we'll begin in verse 3 of chapter 14. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and hard service with which you were made to serve, speaking about the prophet, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the people in wrath with ceaseless blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing, the cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shade that greet you to greet you. All who are leaders of the earth, it raises their thrones, all who are kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as the bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. How you've fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. This is the man who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew it through its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home. All the kings of the earth lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out, away from your grave, like a lonesome branch, clothed with the, with the slain, who, who those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial because you've destroyed your land. You have slain your people. I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Wilmer McLean. Until this week, I hadn't. He lived during the Civil War and in fact, when the Civil War broke out, he told his wife that he was too old to get involved in the fight, so he'd stay out of it. The problem is Wilmer lived on the road that went directly between the Confederate capital of Richmond and the Union capital of Washington. He lived in Manassas, Virginia. 
A week before the war started, the Confederate general, General Beauregard, came to Manassas. He looked at a house that looked favorable to be his next headquarters, and he commandeered it. It was Wilmer's house. General moved in and began to strategize. Within a week, bullets began to fly. Heavy artillery was aimed at that house. In fact, a cannonball came down the chimney. It didn't explode, but that's all Wilmer needed to know, that he and his family must get out of there. And so he grabbed his family, and he moved them 150 miles southeast to a little town by the name of Clover Hill, Virginia. Four years later, when the new Confederate general, Robert E. Lee, had to flee Richmond, he went southeast, or southwest, all the way to Clover Hill, Virginia, which was called Appomattox. When he got to that little town, he saw a house that would be perfect for his headquarters. You guessed it. It was Wilmer McLean's house. He moved in, and in four months, Ulysses S. Grant came to that house, and Robert E. Lee surrendered. McLean said, the war began in my front yard. It ended in my parlor. I did everything I could do to stay out of the war, but no matter what I did, I couldn't stay out. And you say to yourself, what are the chances? What are the chances of that? In Mark chapter 8, a crowd comes to Jesus with a blind man. And they compel Jesus to touch this blind man. Interestingly, Mark says, Jesus takes the blind man out of the city, and there he spits on his eyes. In Jesus' day, saliva was considered medicinal. And so he spits on the man's eyes, he lays his hand on the man's eyes, he removes them and says to the man, what do you see? And the man says, I see men like trees walking. So Jesus lays his hands again on that man's eyes, and when he removes them, he says to the man, what do you see? And the man says, now I see clearly. It's one of the few instances in all of Scripture where there's a a progressive miracle. A miracle that begins with men seen as trees walking and ends with clarity of vision. Now, when you come to the prophets of the Old Testament, often you find in their words a progressive revelation. It's also called sequential revelation. In other words, God calls a prophet to speak into a particular context, into a particular time. And yet what God speaks through the prophet to the people of that time often has not only parable, parallel, but application to other times. So progressive revelation, sequential revelation. In other words, God speaks through a prophet to one situation, but he's also speaking at the same time to another situation, perhaps a hundred years later, perhaps hundreds of years later, perhaps thousands of years later. For instance, when God speaks to Isaiah six times in the book of Isaiah, 
and he tells him to prophesy about the suffering servant. Everybody who reads those suffering servant passages should first think about the context in which the prophet speaks. He's speaking of the suffering servant who is Israel. And yet all of us know, 700 years later, one who will come, whose name is Jesus, he will be the complete fulfillment of those prophetic words. Ezekiel 28. We've looked at that passage a couple of times already in this series. God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel and he says, Prophesy against the prince of Tyre. That's a man who lives at the time of Ezekiel. And yet in verse 10, he changes it to prophesy against one who's called the king of Tyre. And we mentioned there is no one in history named the king of Tyre. And it's safe to conclude that that king of Tyre he's talking about is not someone who lives at the time of Ezekiel, but rather someone who, will, who lived at another time. In fact, we talked about him being one who lived before the beginning of time. His name is Lucifer. And so throughout Scripture, you have these successive revelations of God that apply to different contexts. There's progressive revelation. Sometimes two times, sometimes three times, sometimes more than three times, God's Word is fulfilled in different contexts for different people. So when you come to Isaiah chapter 14, you find another one. Now I want you to think of this. Isaiah is talking from God to one who is known as the king of Babylon. Now it's interesting. When Isaiah prophesies, he's living in the northern kingdom of Israel. The Assyrians are coming to defeat Israel. And yet God says, I want you to speak prophetically against the king of Babylon, who is Nebuchadnezzar, who will not come to power for 135 years. In 135 years, Nebuchadnezzar will come to power, and one of the first things he does is he goes and he destroys the temple of Jerusalem, and he takes captive people like Daniel and others, and all of the gold of the temple. Carries it back to Babylon. Seventy years later, God will judge this king, Nebuchadnezzar, and he will depose him. Now think of it. God speaks to Isaiah. Isaiah prophesies about a king of Babylon who won't come on the scene for over 100 years. And then 200 years later, the word of God is fulfilled. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is deposed. But I want you to see this morning that this prophetic word against the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is not only against him, this prophetic word is against another one who is known as the king of Babylon, whose identity we've already discovered is Lucifer. He's talking about Satan. And what God is saying through the prophet is that I will execute judgment against Lucifer. I will depose him of his rule. I will lock him away forever. In fact, Isaiah here is prophesying about something God will do in the future. Past us. Sometime in the future, 
when Jesus Christ returns again. Isaiah is speaking about all of that. And so I want to dig into this text. Notice, first of all, the setting. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. Now, Isaiah here is speaking, as I mentioned, during a time when the northern kingdom of Israel is falling to Assyria. It is years before Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, will ransack the temple of Jerusalem in Judah. He's also speaking of a time 200 years later when God will bring an end to the rule of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. But he's not only talking about that. He's talking about a time at the end of time when another king called the king of Babylon, Satan himself, will be bound. And he says the whole world will be at rest. In fact, when you read the book of Revelation chapter 20, you will see that Isaiah here in this prophecy speaks almost identical words to the prophet John when he speaks of the same event. There is coming judgment on one who is, was Lucifer, who is now called Satan or the devil or Beelzebub. He is like the king of Babylon, and God will complete his judgment against him. Now that's the setting. Second, notice the strategy. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now remember who this is who's saying this. He is called Lucifer. The name literally means bearer of light, one who shines. And what he says is, I will exert my will above the will of God. And we mentioned last week, before this rebellion, there was only one will in all of the universe, and that was God's will. And when Satan determines to execute his own will, all of a sudden, into all of creation, we have two wills. And I want you to notice, this is not a minor rebellion. In fact, it's a five-fold betrayal. In five different ways... Lucifer, the most blessed of all creatures, the bearer of light, plunges himself into the depths of darkness. First of all, he says, I will ascend to heaven. Psalm 33, the Bible says, From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. Now, for most people, when they think of God, that's what they think. God is on his throne. He looks down from heaven and sees all of his creation, including every single person. And while that's true, I would remind you that's not all the Bible says about God's position. In fact, the Bible says he doesn't just look down. He comes down. God comes down to this earth. You say, oh, you mean Jesus. I mean before Jesus. Genesis chapter 3, 
2 and 3, the Bible indicates that God comes down and walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden. In Genesis 18, the Bible says, God hears the outcry against two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. So what does he do? He comes down to take a look for himself. Now think about that. We have a God who not only looks down, he stoops down. He condescends to his creation. He stoops down not only to look, but he stoops down to see. And yet, what does Lucifer, his adversary, seek? He seeks, he wills to ascend to the place of God. Not only that, he says, I wish, I will to set my throne above the stars. I will to sit enthroned on the mountain of God. Now, every time you see that expression in the Bible, mountain of God, it always means the throne room of God, the place of judgment. It's the place where God dwells. The Hebrew says, I will sit on the mountain of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. Every time you see the north connected to God in judgment, it always means the same thing, divine authority. God is sitting in the place of power. He's sitting in the place of authority. And he says, I will judge Lucifer from there. So what's Lucifer saying? I will usurp the place of God I will usurp the position of God. I will usurp the power of God. Not only that, he says, I'll ascend above the clouds. Clouds throughout the Scripture are representative of God's glory. In other words, what he says is, I will ascend above the glory of God. Not only that, he says, I will make myself like the Most High. And I think it's fascinating that he picked that title for God, the Most High. The Most High in Hebrew is El Elyon. And the first time we see that God described as El Elyon is when God comes to Melchizedek. You may remember that. And Melchizedek, the priest, offers this God, El Elyon, the Most High, an offering. You say, why would he offer an offering to God? Because the name El Elyon means the one who possesses. So Melchizedek recognizes that the one who is visiting him is the one who possesses everything, and his instinctive reaction to that is to give back to the one who possesses everything something that he himself possesses. Is that clear? It isn't clear. Okay, let's say it again. <laughs> so Elyon, the possessor of all things, comes to earth to one who's known as Melchizedek. The first thing he does is gives him an offering. Why? Because he recognizes the one who, he, who has come to see him is the one who possesses everything. And so he's giving back to God what is God's already. Now notice what Lucifer says. I will make myself like the possessor of everything. I mean, this isn't just hubris. This is an outright offense 
against Almighty God. I will make myself the possessor of all things. That's his strategy. Third, notice the solution. Simeon Peter, you'll note if you've got the ESV, there's a footnote. It could be Simon, (laughs) same guy. Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, last week somebody said, now I understand how Jesus could be the second Adam, but I think you're ready to say that Jesus Christ is like the second Lucifer. Is that right? I said, that's right. Think about it. The name Lucifer means carrier of light, the bearer of light. We've already established that he is the most glorious creature ever made by God. He is perfect. The model of perfection, the Lord says. He is perfect in wisdom and in beauty. And God establishes him with three offices. He is prophet, He is priest, and he is king. And if you miss that, go to the podcast. That's the identity of this one Lucifer. Now, does that sound familiar to you? In John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Notice, I'm not just the bearer of light. I'm not just the carrier of light. I am the light of the world. And after his temptation, Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth and he stands in the synagogue and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, to those who are oppressed. Meaning what? Meaning the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to be the prophet of God. Not only that, the Bible makes it clear, Hebrews Jesus is not, chapter 4, Jesus is not only a prophet, he's also the perfect high priest. He's the one who makes atonement for our sins through his sacrifice. He's He's our priest. And then finally, Paul says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Meaning what? Meaning he's king. He is the perfect light of the world. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. You see, when Jesus comes into this world, he comes not only to undo the works of Adam, he comes to do the works of a perfect Lucifer, one who doesn't will another will, one who wills the will of his father. Now listen to what Lucifer says. I will ascend to heaven. Jesus says, I'll descend to earth. Lucifer says, I'll exalt my throne. Jesus says, I'll leave my throne. Lucifer says, I'll sit on the mountain of God. Jesus says, I'll walk in the dust of earth. Lucifer says, I'll ascend above the glory of God. Jesus says, I'll give all glory to my Father. Lucifer says, I will make myself like the Most High. Jesus says, I will humble myself and take on the form of a servant. Do you see that? 
For Lucifer, five is the number of arrogance and pride. But for Jesus, five is the number of grace. He was rich. But for our sakes, he became poor. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And then fourth, notice the significance. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. On October 4th, 1905, Grace Goodhue married an attorney named Calvin Coolidge. A week before they were married, a bookseller came to her door and sold her a book for $8. $8. The book was entitled The Family Physician. As soon as she bought it, she knew she needed to hide it from Calvin because he was cheap. She thought, if he sees this book, he will go nuts. And so she didn't say anything. She just put it on a sitting on the sitting room table without saying anything. They got married. The months passed. The book sat there. Calvin Coolidge said nothing. And then one day, months later, she was cleaning. And she happened to open the book. And there written in her husband's handwriting was a note. I don't see any recipe in here for suckers. Now Peter's no sucker. He knows the truth. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And you know one of the principal, the principal effects of that blindness? It is to believe that this world is all there is. The God of this world has blinded the unbeliever. They cannot see the glory of Christ. They cannot see that Christ is the image of God. And the main effect of that blindness is to believe that this life, this world, is all there is. Now, Peter knows that this world is only a parenthesis. Between the fall of Lucifer... And the incarceration of Lucifer, there is a parenthesis that is known as time. Before Genesis 1-2, there was no time. There was eternity past. And when Jesus comes, and he binds Satan for a thousand years, and then he casts him into the pit, there will be no time. There will be eternity future. Peter knows that this world is a parenthesis. And it's into this time, this parenthesis, that God Himself comes to prove that any will that seeks to exert itself against God's will is destined for futility. It's as if God has said to Himself, I will give this rebellion of Lucifer an adequate trial, a thorough trial. I will let his will run his course. 
I will allow all creation to see that the fruit of a will that's separate from mine is destined for futility. I will allow a spirit of independence to expand as far as it can until it is fully demonstrated once and for all. There is no life, there's no peace, there's no joy, there's no rest apart from willing my will. That's the purpose of time. Just this morning a man said to me, you know, in my job I see that things are getting worse and worse. It's horrible out there. No kidding. And God is allowing it to prove one point, that to will any will other than His will is destined for futility. Isn't that exactly what this table is about? At the time in his life, when Jesus of Nazareth came closest to being seduced by Lucifer, what did he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. You can mark it down. Any life that is lived in opposition to the will of God, any life that is lived in independence from His will, any life that is lived exerting one's own will is destined for futility. It's destined for destruction. Jesus knows it. All of us know it. Think of that as you come to His table this morning and you receive from Him His grace, His mercy. Let's pray. Great God, our Heavenly Father, we bless Your name and we praise You for creating us. You didn't have to do it didn't have to make this world, remake this world. You could have run down the curtain on it all. And yet, in your sovereign plan, you determined to take dust and out of it make men and women like us who might have eyes to see and ears to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is this that we could begin to win, will, one will, your will. Now, Father, as we eat and drink together today, we pray that you'd separate these elements from a common to a sacred purpose, that we might eat and drink of Jesus Christ, and by the Holy Spirit of God, that we might be able to live as Jesus lived, being able to say, in word and in deed. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.